Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. It's been a few weeks since we've gotten the chance to talk with Bishop Barron. So, Bishop, it's it's good to be back with you. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Good to be with you. We had a couple shows from the road, didn't we, when we were filming over in uh, Europe. But it's the first time we've been together now for a couple weeks. That's right. Let, give everyone an update. You've been gone for the last couple weeks, wrapping up the last couple episodes of your Pivotal Players series. How was the trip? What was it like? It was so good. You know, th- those trips are always hard in a way because you're, you know, on the road for almost two weeks and you're in planes and trains and buses and vans and you're getting up at odd times and you're eating you know, out of your normal rhythm. The worst country in the world, I love it, but the worst country in the world for eating is Spain because the Spanish don't have dinner. I'm not kidding until 10 o'clock at night. So the restaurants don't even open until uh, nine. So that plays with your digestive system if you're already jet lagged and off rhythm and then you're not eating dinner till 10 or 10.30 at night. So anyway, there are some of those practical challenges. But having said that, it was a, it was a wonderful trip. Rome and then all over Spain. We were Barcelona to Manresa to Valladolid to Loyola back to, um, to Madrid. It was a wonderful tour. And then the Dominican Republic, which I had never visited before for Las Casas and going to the, the beach there to see like where he would have come ashore, but then also filming in Santo Domingo itself, which is really for the Americas. It's like the oldest city. It's, it was the capital of the Spanish uh, expedition really in those early decades. And so it's very moving to me. I, I love the trip, um, but also glad to be back home. I'm getting ready for the influx of letters from our Spanish listeners about yeah, I know. being the worst in the world. <laughs> well, I love the Spanish. And I love Spain, but I don't love the eating, as I must confess. You know? All right. Well, listen, in today's episode, we're going to do something we've never done before, something unique. Bishop Barron is going to answer some of the world's most popular questions about God as determined by the autocomplete results on Google. This is uh, something I've seen done by Wired Magazine. They do these autocomplete interviews with celebrities. Now, most people listening to this will know how Google works. When you begin typing in a phrase, it'll fill out some recommended endings of that search phrase based on the most popular search term. So we went to Google and we began with the phrase, does God, and then we let Google Mm. fill out the rest based on what actual people are searching around the world. That's interesting. So okay. let's let's talk through some of these most popular search phrases. Here's the number one result. Does God love everyone? What do you think? Uh, yes. And, you know, you can give a, a kind of sentimental response to that or a more strict uh, theological response. I'll do Thomas Aquinas. To love is to will the good of the other, right? It's not a sentiment. In fact, God doesn't have sentiments, but but God does have a will. And to exist is a good, obviously. To exist is better than not existing. Therefore, whatever exists has, at least to that degree, been loved because God has willed it some good. So Aquinas will say, for example, does God love a a rock? Yeah, sure, because God's willed existence for it. We might say, does God love, you know, quarks and subatomic particles and so on? Well, yeah, sure. God has, has willed goodness to them. So does God love everyone and everything? Yeah, ipso facto. In the measure that things and people exist, they're loved. Now, the follow-up, the interesting question, and this would be another show maybe, does God love all people and all things equally? 
And the answer of, of Aquinas famously is no. Now, now, what do I mean? Well, stay with these examples I've already given. Does God love you, Brandon, more than he loves a rock? Well, yeah, clearly. Why? Because he's willed you far more good. Right? He's willed you the good of material existence, okay, but also all the other gifts and all the other powers and all the other uh, abilities you have means God's willed you more good than he has to the rock. Now, press it. Does God love an angel more than he loves me? And the answer is yes, because God's given the angel greater ontological perfection. God's willed more good to the angel than to me. Now, is there an ultimate purpose to all this inequality? Yeah, just as a great work of art is filled with all sorts of lights and shadows and inequalities and things in the center and things in the periphery, etc. Let's press it a little further. Does it mean that that the rock somehow feels this as a great uh, uh, lack? Well, no. The rock is a rock. That's what it's made to be and made to do. Do I spend a lot of time <laughs> wondering why I am not an angel? Well, if I were mentally ill, maybe I would. But I can guarantee you I don't. I spend zero time wondering, now, why am I not an angel? No, rather, okay, God has loved me. God has given me certain goods, and I, I exult in that. And he gave angels even greater goods for his own purposes. So anyway, I'm amplifying a bit, but uh, the basic thing is God love everyone and everything. Yes, yes. But his love is artistic, if I can put it that way. It's a, it's, um, it's a rich and complex love, you know. Our egalitarianism would sort of flatten everything out. Uh, but God loves in a variety of ways. When I was in college, there was a street preacher that would often set up shot right in the middle of the main green. And he was a real bombastic fundamentalist Protestant street preacher. And the only thing that he did was scream at people with a bullhorn <laughs> who were walking by. And it was mostly, unfortunately, young women. You know, he would say, if you saw a young woman in a, in a skirt, he would, you know, say, you're, you know, uh, you know, a prostitute or a whore or something like this. And God yeah. hates you. God hates you. And then he would go off on rants against other populations, LB, LGBT people, you know, atheists. Yeah, right. God hates you. God right. hates you. So a group of friends of mine, we created these T-shirts that said, Jesus doesn't hate you. And we went into the green where he was and we'd regularly just stand there as sort of like a quiet counter protest. And mm -hmm. many people came up and they said, you know, this was the first time somebody told me that Jesus didn't hate me despite my yeah. <laughs> immoral behavior. But at the same time, we got a lot of pushback from other Christian groups for doing this because they thought that by proclaiming that God loves everyone without qualification, we were also endorsing everyone's behavior. Yeah. And how important a, is it to make the distinction between God loves everyone, but God doesn't love everything, every behavior? Yeah. Right. Because, well, a couple of things. First of all, my old friend, Robert Sokolowski, a Catholic U, said philosophy is the art of making distinctions. And that often comes back to my mind because we're so bad at it. We're so bad at making distinctions. There's a good, very good example. To say God loves everyone, of course, God wills them good. God wants our full flourishing. But God doesn't love all forms of behavior. Now, now, how come? Now, press it metaphysically, because evil is always a type of non-being, right? Evil is not a, a positive thing. It's the absence of a good that ought to be there, like a limp 
are like a cavity in a tooth. And so when you say God doesn't love aberrant forms of behavior, well, yeah, sure, because those are forms of non-being that God has never wanted. God has never chosen or desired that state of affairs. And so God militates against it, if you want to put it that way. God's, uh, you know, the symbol in the Bible is God's anger, uh, not that God's having emotional states. He doesn't have emotional states. But he has this, this desire, will again, to set things right. And so does God hate sin? We say, yeah, sure. And he loves sinners all the way. So that's the relevant distinction. All right. So that was the number one most Googled question about God. Does God love everyone? The second one is somewhat of a corollary. Does God love me? Yeah, but that it's all, it's good though, Brandon, because that's a, it's not just a trivial thing because both classically and in a contemporary terms, we can see God or the supreme reality as very abstract, uh, existing at a very high level, maybe concerned with the great uh, generalities of existence. Think of the ancient Gnostic systems along those lines, or some of the Platonic systems, which were very influential in the ancient world. Or think, I would say, of a lot of New Age systems today, where God is this kind of grand abstraction, and maybe God has to do with, you know, high principles or something. But Thomas Aquinas says that God's providence extends to particulars. And that's typically abstract way of stating it, but it's a very profound truth, isn't it? Does God love me. Yes. God wants my good. He wants your good and his providence because he's the ground of all being extends to particulars. And now doesn't Jesus say the same thing? You know, not a, not a sparrow falls to the ground without my heavenly father knowing it. Um, I was in the backyard here in my house last night and it's the birds have really come back, the hummingbirds and all kinds of little tiny, little tiny birds, you know, flying around. Um, I'm barely aware of them for a few minutes in the evening. Is God aware of all of them all the time? Yeah. There's not one hummingbird that falls to the earth and, and dies that God doesn't know about it. And so, yeah, God loves you in particular. God loves me in particular. And when you get that, your whole spiritual life will change, you know? Uh, I did my holy hour this morning, and um, that's a lot of what that is, is um, is allowing to sink into your heart the fact that God loves me, and God wants what's best for me, and God is calling me to something today. So, yeah, it's a good question, and the answer is yes. <laughs> he loves you. All right. The next one in the Google autocomplete series of Does God is, Does God Change His Mind? You know, it was cool about these questions, and I'm hearing them for the first time. Uh, I used to tell my my kids, my students at Mundelein Seminary, never, ever be afraid to ask what seem like really simple questions, because the simplest questions in theology, especially, are always the best. And I stand by that. That's after 25 years of teaching theology. People that come up with the, you know, highfalutin questions with the, you know, four-syllable words and all that, that's for the academic journals. But the, the really basic ones are always the most searching and interesting ones. So does God change his mind? The answer is no. And the reason is that God doesn't change. Now, I know right away we balk at that, right? Because in our experience, things that change are good. Change is a good thing. You know, if you don't change, you, you sound like a rock, you know, or you're, you're unresponsive. You're stuck in your ways. You're, you're, um, 
um, dull, you know? What do we mean when we say God doesn't change? We mean that God is not a being in the world caught in the nexus of conditioned relations. So like you and I, Brandon, right now, uh, we're relating to each other. Uh, we both are characterized by actuality, which means we have forms of being and perfection in us. But we're both characterized by deep potentiality too, right? Forms of non-being. And because of that, we can and should both become. Now, for example, I, I might ask you, how are you doing? <laughs> What's happening with you? Hey, tell me about the show today. You could ask me, hey, where have you been? What's been going on? Both of those moves are attempts to actualize potential, right? Now, in the measure that we change, that I say, oh, now I do understand Brandon better. And now you understand me better. That's all to the good because creatures are meant to change that way. Then there's God. God is not one conditioned cause among many who stands in a relation of potentiality vis-a-vis -vis other causal agents. Rather, God is that we say the uncaused cause or the necessary being who is unconditioned and fully actualized. That's why he doesn't change. He can't get better. He can't benefit from something else and now grow in being. See? Now, let me make a last point. Therefore, can you see that the God I'm describing is at a is at an infinite remove from a rock or like the, or there's the rock of Gibraltar. It never changes. The rock of Gibraltar is a being at an extremely low level of actuality, right? It is. It, in fact, it impressively is the rock of Gibraltar, but I mean, it's, it, it could be destroyed. It could be cut in half. It could be obliterated. It could be picked up and moved. It could be, in other words, it's, it's a deeply potential form of being. God is at an infinite remove from that. God is octus purus, we say. Pure act. And octus translates the, the Greek energeia, which I always love. Our energy comes from that. God is pure energy, pure activity. In that sense, he doesn't change. And so he doesn't change his mind like, oh, yeah. See, if you told me something that I didn't know, and it caused me to say, oh, you know what? I never thought about that. Yeah, let's do it differently. So now I've changed my mind. Good. That's a good thing for people like me, these very low-level beings, you know. But God doesn't change his mind because God is pure energy, pure actualization. I know it's hard to psychoanalyze Google searchers from a distance, but it strikes me that this is the third most search question after does god love everyone does god love me yeah. why what, what do you think people have in mind when they're searching does god change his mind i wonder if it has to do with does he change his mind in regard to me like hey my life is kind of a, a wreck and i'm under god's judgment and could he ever change his mind and uh i'm guessing and i don't know that but see look at that one again it's not as though god is going in and out of emotional states like let's say you offended me in some way and then you apologize. And I was mad at you, but then you apologize. And I said, all right, Brandon's a good guy. I, you're right. I accept your apology and I'm changing my mind. Now I'm going to be friendly to you again. Okay, that's fine for creatures, low, low level beings like us. We can operate that way. But God is not like that. As though he's going in and out of emotional states. What's his attitude toward everyone listening to me right now? It's an attitude of, 
I'll use the, the Rogerian language, unconditioned positive regard. That's God's attitude. Now, can that look and feel like judgment? Uh-huh. Why? When I'm out of step with God, his positive regard toward me is trying to draw me out of the negative state I'm in. So the no that he says to me is a no to a no, right? I've said no in some fundamental way to what God wants me to be. God then says no to that no. What's a no to a no is a yes. My point is God's attitude is always yes to us. He doesn't go in and out of states. He doesn't change his mind. He always wants what's best for us. Does the resistance to God's yes hurt? Yeah, it does. And so we use symbols like, you know, the suffering and pain and so on. Because it is painful to resist what God wants for us. But that pain is not coming maliciously from God. It's generated by the tension that our own errant will is setting up with God. I wonder if that helps people. That That's what they're getting at. Does God change his mind? Just think, no, he, he never changes his mind in regard to you. He's always willing your good. That's a good segue to this fourth most searched question. Does God punish? Yeah, and the answer is yes. I mean, the Bible is filled with the language of God's uh, judgment, God's justice, and indeed God's punishment. Look at the people Israel uh, are punished. Now, how do you read it? Don't read it through the lens now of human experience, because I'd say 99 times out of 100, when human beings punish, they're doing it to some degree out of out of self-will, right? We're all sinners. We're all flawed. And therefore, we say, boy, that person offended me. And that objectively is a, is a bad state of affairs. So I'm going to try to correct it. But, but my punishment almost invariably is, is colored by my own egotism, my own sense of retribution. When God punishes, what are we saying? God is trying to set things right. Does God allow us, like a good parent, and you're, you're a parent of six kids, Brandon, you know about this. Um, do you sometimes allow your kids to feel the negative consequences of their bad choices so as to condition them in a better direction? Um, and even if that the negative consequence might be that, boy, my parents really got mad at me, you know, and my parents really uh, chastised me. Yeah, parents do that all the time. They punish their children, not because they hate them, but because they're trying to draw them back to uh, to the right path. Um, and so I think we see that kind of punishment, sure, in the Bible and in the great tradition. I'm reminded when I read, read this question of an article that you wrote maybe a couple years back on Stephen Colbert and J.R.R. Tolkien, yeah. The Providence of God. Colbert yeah. was being interviewed and he was asked about this trauma he experienced as a young man when his father and his two brothers died in a plane crash. And Colbert yeah. said, boy, did I have a bomb dropped on me when I was 10 years old? It was quite an explosion. But... I came to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. And the interviewer was kind of flummoxed to hear him say that and ask yeah, for a clarification. Yeah. And he, he quoted a line from J.R.R. Tolkien. I think it was in a letter Tolkien wrote that said, what punishments of God are not gifts? Talk about that line. Right. And that's it, though, isn't it? Said much better than I just did in, in many words. Tolkien said it beautifully in a few words. Uh, 
whatever we mean by the divine punishment is always uh, ingredient in the divine love. It's always part of God willing what's best for us. How often, Brandon, in prayer do I come to that where I'm going through my life and you're trying to read your life theologically or spiritually? What's God up to? So I can read my life all kinds of ways, you know, politically and in terms of the church, in terms of my friendships and all this. But all right, what's God up to? And you say, God, this is what I'm going through now. I just hate it or I'm just unhappy about this or this is not working out the way I wanted it to. Okay, but what's God up to? Why has God, at least in his permissive will, will this for you now. And and the conviction is always, he's willing it for my good in some ways. I have to see that. I have to accept it and cooperate with it. So whatever it is, you say, this thing, I really wanted it and it didn't happen. And I'm mad at people. All right, that's unfair. All right, all right. But at the very least, it's God's permissive will that this happened to me. And God is love straight through. That's all he ever has toward me is love. So, all right, what is it? And help me, Lord, to cooperate with what you deign to will for me, even though it's not what I wanted. How often, Brandon, in prayer, and I catch myself, it's funny, I'll be in front of the blessed sacrament and I'll say some version of, oh, Lord, please give me give me what I want, you know, and whatever it is. We all are like that. Lord, please, I just want the, please give me what I want. But then there's like this little inner voice that always stops me and says, no, no, no. Lord, give me what you want. Align me to what you want for me. That's the right way to pray. And then we see even things like, you know, punishments or all these great negativities. What did Tolkien say again? What punishment of God has not also been a gift, right? All right. That maybe is the, fruit of prayer is to see the gift quality of it. All right. Here's the next search phrase, the Google autocomplete result for does God, does God Zilla die? (laughs) Godzilla. You mean Godzilla, the Japanese uh, nuclear (laughs) I guess this is what the new Godzilla, King of the Monsters movie. uh, Does Godzilla Godzilla die? die? Well, evidently, (laughs) I remember as a little kid, I love the old Godzilla movies, those really corny ones. You know, where they had a guy clearly dressed up in a rubber suit. <laughs> and But you know what's amazing? I watched those when I was probably seven or eight years old, utterly convinced. I, I was frightened by those movies. I loved them. I thought they were, there's Godzilla. You look at them now and you think they're beyond parody. They're ridiculous. They're like two, two but, foot styrofoam buildings he's knocking over. Oh, yeah. And he's just moving around. And, and I love those movies, though. But I guess the answer to the question is no, Godzilla doesn't die because now he's back. But I would still submit to you, the old ones were better. And the new ones, the new, all the CGI stuff. I don't like it. I think it just kills movies, but hey, that's for another day. We'll <laughs> That'll talk be about for it. our Godzilla <laughs> podcast. All right. Yeah. Next question. Does God have a name? These are, these are really good. That's a Google one. Mm-hmm. Huh? That's very interesting because that's, that's a classic problem, isn't it? Um, what's God's name in the old Testament? Well, if, if I said it in old Testament times, I would be guilty of a kind of blasphemy. Uh, God's name is the Tetragrammaton, right? The four letters, Y-H-W-H. Um, and so we say, as a kind of transliteration of it, we say Yahweh, you know, Yahweh. But Yahweh is the, is the unpronounceable name. Uh, is, is when the, Moses asked God, what's your name? And he said, you know, he said that. What does it mean? Well, welcome to, 
you know, thousands of years of commentary, but uh, something like I, I am who I am, pal. <laughs> you know? In other words, don't pin a name on me. If you pin a name on me, you have to that degree pinned me down and you've got control over me. So I, I can call you uh, Brandon and I'll get your attention probably, or I go on my, I don't understand these machines, but I'll go on one of these machines and I can find your name, Brandon, and I can call you and you'll probably respond. So my knowing your name gives me to that degree control over you. It's the one thing we can't have with God. We can't have control over God. And so the great Hebrew instinct was you don't pronounce God's holy name. Um, now, you can call God Adonai, as they did, the Lord. And that's why the Lord is so powerful in the Old Testament. And then how wonderful that Jesus is called by the first Christians, Hokurios in their Greek, the Lord. And people like Saul of Tarsus, they knew just what they were doing when they did that because they knew the great Septuagint tradition of referring to Yahweh, the unpronounceable, as Adonai, as the Lord. So when Paul says, you know, proclaim to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord, man, that's that's, that's a complete revolution in that line. Um, now, that brings us to a cool point, though. Having said all of that about the unpronounceability of God's name, which remains valid, um, Jesus has been given, Paul says, the name above every other name, right? What's the sacred name of God? Well, we have been given a name of the Son of God, anyway, Yeshua, uh, which has the sense of Yahweh saves, right? So in a way, we do have the sacred name, Jesus. You know, it's interesting, Brandon, my father, uh, who was in the greatest generation and had that wonderful sort of unshakable uh, redwood tree-like faith, right? Uh, my father's generation was taught at the name of Jesus that you always bowed your head. Do, do we, like, are your kids taught that? I'm just curious. Do, do yeah, we, I, I've, our parish and a lot, a lot of younger families and younger Catholics I see bringing that back during the creed, during yeah. any mention during the, the mass of Jesus' name to bow. Right. And my my father had that for sure. Anytime the name Jesus was was said, bow your head. But also, and this, I know the process would make fun of us sometimes, but my Father's generation especially, they didn't really like using the name Jesus that much. I think it's because they thought it was a little too chummy. And you're talking about the name above every other name. You're talking about the divine name. And so, you know, like Fulton Sheen, who's my parents' generation, would have called Jesus our blessed Lord all the time, as our blessed Lord said. Uh, now, my generation, we were kind of encouraged to use the name Jesus a lot. And I get it, you know, as to maybe overcome a certain exaggerated reticence. But I, I, the older I get, the more I respect uh, the Fulton Sheen and, and my father's uh, sense. First of all, if that name is ever said, I mean, you, you bow your head. But you also, you kind of stay away from it. You, it's a little irreverent to be just Jesus, 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 that Christ or the Lord or our blessed Lord. So anyway, it's a very interesting thing. So the, the quick answer, this God of a name, I would say, I would say no, God, God is the unpronounceable name. God can't be named. Aquinas says the highest name of God is quiesced. That means he who is, right? So you tell me if that clears things up. Oh, that's I get it now. In a way, that's like saying, I'm not going to give you any traction. So like 
Brandon Vaught. Well, right away, I've named your family. I've named the specific member of your family, Brandon. I can link you to other Vots. I can look at your background. I could Google that right now. And I learn a lot about you. I've, I've specified the manner of your existence a lot with that name. Now, I'll keep going. Brandon Vaught is, um, works at Word on Fire. Brandon Vaught lives in Orlando. Brandon Vaught lives at this, you know, particular address. With all that language, I'm specifying. I'm getting a lot of traction to understand you. God, what's his name? Quiest. The one who is. Okay, uh, I don't have a lot of traction. Uh Uh-huh, that's the point. Uh, There's like no street names. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. That's the old that U2 song, you know, where the streets have no names. But that's an old mystical trope. You're in the country where the streets have no names. You don't quite know where you're going. That's all appropriate when it comes to God and God's name. Anyway, I've been rambling about that one too much. But. All right. Let's do one final question. <laughs> okay. Again, these are coming from the most commonly searched terms yeah, on it's Google, cool. beginning with, does God? Here's the last one. Does God want us to be happy? Yes, that's all he wants. Because God's willing us good. And what's good to us? Well, our existence, but then also our full flourishing. Uh, I often cite St. Irenaeus, right? Gloria Dei Homo Vivens. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. That's what God wants. Does he sometimes say no? Yes, because we have a lot of no, 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 no in our life. So God has to say no to the no, but the no to the no is always yes. God wants us fully alive. He wants us to be happy. The minute you start thinking of God as a tyrant brooding over every little action of yours so he can pounce on you and send you to eternal perdition, you've got a, you've got a misguided notion of God. God wants us to be alive. Period. Well, it's time now for a question from one of our listeners. Today, we're hearing from Amanda in Texas, and she's asking a question about Jesus, but it's one of the most fundamental questions you could perhaps ask about him. Here's Amanda. Bishop Barron, my name is Amanda from Texas, and my question is, what historical evidence do we have for the existence of Jesus? For non-Christians, the Gospels themselves aren't sufficient enough to prove his historical existence, and even the reality of the martyrs falls short because you can't prove that someone wouldn't sacrifice their life for a false religious ideology. How should we approach a dialogue with someone who questions this belief? Thanks so much for your ministry at Word on Fire, and God bless. Yeah, it's good. It's a question you hear a lot. You want the details? Get Brand Petrie's book on the case for, for Jesus, right? If you want all the details. Let me say a couple of quick things. First of all, we have more reliable historical evidence about Jesus of Nazareth than almost any other figure from the ancient world. You talk about um, Alexander the Great. You talk about Julius Caesar. Go through the whole list. Aristotle. Like Aristotle's life. We know more in a reliably historical way about Jesus than practically any other figure from the ancient world. The only way you would discount all of this massive evidence from the Gospels, the Pauline letters, etc., is if you say, from the beginning of your analysis, well, I'm going to rule out the Gospels. I'm going to rule out anything with a reference to the supernatural. Well, that's just a prejudice. And now you're just arguing in a circle. You're saying, well, the Gospels can't be historical. Oh, look, there's no historical evidence for Jesus. St. Luke, for example, as he commences his great enterprise, so I, I've been consulting, you know, the sources that I have, and I, I want to present to you. Now, 
not in the manner of a contemporary biography. So the idea of a biography changed a lot over the centuries. But he's very interested in laying out for us what he thinks is an historically accurate account of Jesus. Now, next point. Name me one text in the ancient world that is not self-interested. What I mean is every account of any person in the ancient world, what Plutarch's lives, go through any of these ancient things, they're all from a perspective. They're all biased, if you want. They're all trying to make a case. So to say that the Gospels are uniquely problematic because, oh, they're written by, you know, propagandists, every author in the ancient world, by our standards, is a propagandist. They all are. Now, does that mean that we just rule them out of court? No, it means we read them with a sort of critical attention. Uh, but I think it's just born of a great prejudice that has to be called out as such when people say, oh, there's no historical evidence for Jesus. There's plenty of historical evidence for Jesus, more indeed than for any other figure in the ancient world. Brandon, what was your point you were saying earlier about uh, uh, Bart Ehrman? There's something you yeah, I think that's worth mentioning that Bart Ehrman is a biblical scholar from the University of North Carolina and probably the most popular skeptical Bible scholar on the scene today. He doubts Jesus's miracles. He doubts he's he's not a Christian. Super skeptical. Um, yeah. Super skeptical. But he wrote a book called Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth because he was fed up from his fellow skeptics suggesting or even just implying that Jesus might have just been a myth. There's a, a position that's become known as mythicism. Um, so if you want a book from a non-religious person still strongly arguing that Jesus was a real historical person, check out Bart Ehrman's book, Did Jesus Exist? Good, yeah. All right. Well, listen, thanks so much to everyone for listening to this episode of the Word on Fire show. A few special thank yous to our patron supporters, including Ken Reeb Jr., Manette Storley, and Linda Gardiner. Guys, we are so grateful for your support of this show. We've we've already been using our patron uh, support to do a lot of things, including upgrading the lighting and video equipment and our video studios and helping to promote these episodes to many new audiences. It's getting out there even beyond what we were able to reach by ourselves. So to all of our patrons, thank you so much. Um, here's something I haven't asked in a while. Whether you're able to support us financially or not, please leave a review on iTunes of the Word on Fire show. It's free, takes just a couple seconds, but it helps iTunes recommend the show to more people if it gets a lot of reviews. So take a few seconds, go to iTunes and leave a review of the Word on Fire show. Well, thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. 